Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Good morning. It's good to see you. We are in Romans 8, and I have today and next week to knock this the rest of this out, and it will be a challenge. It will be a challenge. If you've read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, I think in it there is a really, really great picture of what Paul is trying to say, at least at the, the core, if you could wrap it or get it to its smallest point. Remember, the great divorce is essentially the divorces between heaven and hell and, and the difference between people who, who uh, are changed by God and enter heaven and people who, who don't get there. And the story starts out basically as a bus ride from hell to heaven. And so people who didn't make it get on a bus, and they are called ghosts. And the reason they're ghosts is because they're not substantial. They're not real. They haven't been transformed into what matters the most. Well, one of the ghosts, when he's off the bus and he's touring around heaven and he's seeing it, gets a little close to the door. And a big fiery angel meets him. You can read this right at the end of the book, and it's so powerful. And I, I won't read all of it because it's too long, but it's an incredible dialogue. When the ghost arrives, the angel sees him coming a little bit from a distance and notices this kind of reddish lizard on him. And so as he gets closer, he realizes that's what it is. And I've always, it's always been a picture to me of just like this iguana sitting here. But it has lived with him all his life. It's almost become a part of him. He doesn't know how to live without it. It represents his dark side. And it has lived there all its life. It has soiled his clothes. It has made his life difficult. It has whispered in his ear things that have turned him in the wrong direction. And you'll remember that the angel asks him, can I kill it? And he's just, well, I, I don't think he needs to die because he's squawking and he's doing all this stuff. He's kind of a nuisance. He's been a nuisance to this man's life, but he's so used to it that he can't imagine life without it. And so when the angel offers to take it off of him and kill it, you see really what separates the, the people who, who are not substantial and the people who are. Because you have to be willing to transform and you have to be willing to change. Remember, that's what heaven is all about. If we haven't seen anything else, that's what we've seen in, in Romans 8. And so there's this continued dialogue, and the angel just keeps saying, can I kill it? And finally, out of desperation, this man, and I'll let you read the longer portion, the angel grabs this lizard. And there is this shrieking, and the man thinks he's going to die because this lizard dies. So he doesn't know himself without the lizard. He doesn't know himself without this untransformed side of him. He just doesn't know him. And so when he pulls this off and he takes it and he slings it to the ground and its back is broken and it's laying there and it's screaming. 
the man begins to transform and so does the lizard. The man, Lewis writes, for a moment I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing ever, every moment solider. That's what he says. The upper arm and then the shoulder of a man, then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and the golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man. Isn't that great? It's a great graphic image because he materializes into something more real and more solid. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that your inner, your outer man is decaying, but your inner man is being transformed into something new all the time. And even though the outer part of you is decaying, the more real side, the solider part, the part that God has a hold of and is transforming you, ultimately will transform you totally. And that's what glorification is. That's what it means to be glorified. In Paul's thinking in Romans 8, you become solider, more real. Now, the whole theme of Romans 8 is couched in the security of this fact for every believer. Every believer who has been born again will most definitely be transformed. He will become complete Solid, if you will. Real. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the process. And that's what we've seen about salvation all along. You are justified. You are sanctified. And Paul's emphasizing in Romans 8, you will be glorified as well. So God is not offering tickets to heaven. When he saves you, it's with one purpose in mind to transform you from the get-go. No one comes to Christ and is not changed and is not ultimately changed. That's what salvation is. That's always been his purpose. And even suffering cannot thwart that plan where we are in Romans 8, what Paul has suggested. We saw over the last few weeks that suffering prepares you for glory. They are linked. They are linked in your relationship with Christ and it prepares you for glory. It also makes glory sweeter. So everything then becomes a part of the process of salvation, which is essentially transformation from the moment you give your life to Christ. That's what it's all about. So creation we saw, as Paul says, the significance of your transformation, the significance of your transformation is felt even in creation where he says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present, oh, that's not it. I don't have it up there. It's, remember when he says, creation groans for you. It groans in verses 19 to 22. He groans. So creation understands that it's not healthy, that it's not whole. It understands who its creator is and who it responds to what the ultimate goal is in salvation. And so it groans. And we said groaning is a heavenly longing. It's not misery, although it comes out of some pain of not being everything we can be. It's not a whine. It's not a moan. It's a heavenly longing for something you know is coming, and that is the glory. 
that transformation. Creation knows you're going to be transformed, and it waits. Remember, it's pictured as an audience waiting to see. Then it's pictured as a victim because it fell because you fell. So really, creation's whole reality is tied to yours. When humans fell, creation fell. It became futile. And then when you are glorified, it gets transformed as well. So it's looking at you. But then verse 23, we get to verse 23, and it says, not only this, not only does creation groan for our transformation, but we ourselves groan. We're groaning. Our groaning is created, notice, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, which Paul has been saying, you're secure in the Spirit all the way through here. And you can check yourself by seeing the Spirit's activity in your life. If the Spirit is there, it's doing certain things, and what it's doing is the transforming process. That's why no one can say, well, I want to give my life to Christ, but I don't want to change. That's impossible. Because God takes up residence in you with the Spirit, and the Spirit begins to produce in you what God ultimately intends to produce in you. And so we see, we ourselves are groaning. And the only reason we groan, again, it's a heavenly longing, is because the Spirit is inside us. Why do we groan? We have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is a phenomenal verse. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What creation is looking forward to for us has already begun because the Holy Spirit is now inside of you, and he's called the first fruits for a reason, the first fruits of the Spirit. But let me just say this to you. This is a good picture to keep in mind. The two defining moments in the life of a believer. Two defining moments in the life of a believer. And the first one is when he receives the Holy Spirit. So the reception of the Holy Spirit. Remember Paul says in verse 9, you're not even, you can't even be a Christian. You're not a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit in him. So the first mark of the believer is that the Holy Spirit is in there. All right? That's the first one. The second one is the redemption of the, of the body. This is what, what glory is. So there's two real defining moments, when you receive the Holy Spirit and when you are ultimately changed through and through. Like C.S. Lewis's picture. All of these are combined by the fact of change. This is the beginning of salvation and this is the end. They are, the, they are of the same piece. The goal is transformation from the get-go. And you have the Holy Spirit in you already starting the transforming process. That's what first fruits means. First fruits is an Old Testament image. When you hear it, you think Old Testament because it pictured the harvest. The Israelites, being in a uh, theocratic nation, if you will, run by God, I mean, they knew that God was the, in charge of the crops. He sent the rain. He made the crops occur. And they would do the work. And when the first crop came in, that was called the first fruits. Remember, a lot of that in the Old Testament, they gave to God because it was the first part and the best part. And so they're offering, that's what they offered to God was the first fruits. And the first fruits was a couple of, there was a couple of signs in the first fruits that make it uh, essential. 
First of all, it was the best part. It was a good, exciting time to get the first crop. But then the second part of the first fruits, why it's called first fruits, is because it signified that there would be more fruits coming. It was a guarantee that there would be a future crop. This is the reason you could give this one away, because you didn't have to worry. You could trust God on the rest of the fruit, see? That's why they gave it, because they knew that the rest of it was coming. It was a guarantee. And so it signaled a really wonderful crop to come. And so the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of, and I coined this phrase, I don't know if it works or not, the future fruits. There's future fruits coming, but it's all about fruit and transformation and growth is the, is the image. In the New Testament, this has the idea of the first stage. When you, hear, when you hear first fruits in the New Testament, it means the first stage of something, the first stage of a full process to come. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the first stage This is the first stage when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. We go back to our image. This is the first fruits and guaranteeing that this one will come. And there's no way to lose the Holy Spirit here. He started a process that he will definitely conclude. And the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of that. I say, really, let's get an image of what this means. So I just reflected on this for a moment because I think there's a powerful point to be seen here. Already beginning the transformation, right? To be a Christian is to be on a track of transformation, not a ticket to heaven. It's a track of transformation. So you can see they're all tied together. You can't move through that. They're all of the same piece. But the believer experiences already the life to come. Told you, you don't want to get to heaven and like stand around looking around like, What was all this about? I don't get it. Oh, that's cool. No. You're going to get there and go, I get this because it's been happening to me all along. Because the Spirit's in there. He's doing what he's going to ultimately do. So you're not going to be shocked in heaven in that sense. So you're already breathing the air of heaven. And I guess Paul would suggest that anyone who doesn't feel that, anyone who doesn't feel alienated from this world, anyone who loves it, longs to be in it, wants what it has, would suggest that they're not on this track, you see? The Holy Spirit comes in and it it drives us to this, which has been Paul's whole point. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He's driving you to this point. You're on a trajectory of transformation. And I want to just show you just a little bit about if the Spirit is the first fruits, and we already can see, in the first fruits and the first crop, you could already see the fruit, and the fruit was really good. It was really great fruit. Not grapefruit, great fruit. All right, it was great fruit. So in your life now, there ought to be some great fruit that signals a real ultimate harvest coming, you see? So what's the fruit in your life now? I just started thinking about just a few things, and we could probably, we could spend forever on this, but real quickly, just think about my own life for a minute because I'm so far from perfect. And that's what partially makes the groaning, and that's what partially makes it feel like first fruits. There's so much more to come than there is now, but I can tell that the Spirit is in my life because I have some hopes in my life that I wouldn't have unless the Holy Spirit was there. 
Like one of the things I really hope and long for, and I think about this often, now at 48, I want to finish well. I don't want to embarrass God in any way before I croak. And every day, it seems, every week, every year, there's another reason, another opportunity, a new temptation to throw it all away for something. You know what I'm saying? You feel it? It's like every day there's the possibility that in just one stupid decision, you could, you could just screw it all up. That scares me to death because I, I don't want to go out like that. That wouldn't be there if the Holy Spirit wasn't there. I think about um, even my kids. I don't wish for my kids' success. I want them to know and love God more than anything else. That's what I long for the most. I don't know what they're going to be, what they're going to do. They were down, in, I had two boys in San Antonio this past week, or the week before, wherever it was, when, when um, Mike, my youngest, had never been before. And I knew this was going to be a, a little bit of a shocker to him, and the whole deal was going to be a little bit heavy, and it, and it was a little bit heavy for him at first. He got his feet under him a couple of days in. But he hung in there, and he did it, and some things transpired in his heart, and all week long, that's, the, that's what my heart longed for the most, was that he would see and feel and sense something that only God could do. Didn't care about anything else. I mean, I didn't want him to embarrass me. I have him and uh, <laughs> Nick down there, and anything could have happened, right? All right? But I avoided that prayer. I acted like it didn't matter at all. And then there's things in my heart that I want to see happen in the world that are bigger than me. There's no way they could be there if the Holy Spirit wasn't there. You know, like the Africa thing, which I haven't mentioned to you in a while, but the elders have been grappling with that in light of a new year and whether or not we're going to do it. And we finally came to the conclusion that we're going to go into the new year. We're going to start September, which is our ministry year, with Africa at the forefront of our minds. And I'm going to share with you just a wonderful ministry opportunity that we have. You're going to love it, Hillside. But when I think about that, I think, God, I want you to do something through Hillside there really great. That's a Holy Spirit thing. Then I have feelings. I feel things, sadness, and I rejoice with you who rejoice. I'm very sad when you hurt or when someone else hurts. Lots of things make me sad. Lots of things make me rejoice in this life. They're Holy Spirit-driven. And then a few weeks ago, I couldn't sleep because I felt guilty because I did something stupid. And it racked me. So that's not you. And I literally couldn't sleep the whole night. The next morning, I had to get up and make sure I dealt with the problem, and, and I dealt with it, but it was just inappropriate. And that's the Holy Spirit making me uncomfortable with those parts of me that aren't transformed yet. And if you have the Holy Spirit in there, you have some sleepless nights. And they're not just because things didn't go your way. They're because you screwed up. That's the Holy Spirit. Those are first fruits. They're all first fruits. 
of what is to come, and what is to come must be amazing. And so we groan. We groan for those, but we only groan because the Holy Spirit's already given us a taste of what's going to happen. We groan within ourselves because he's in there, and we wait eagerly, just like creation is, for our adoption as sons. Now listen, we're already adopted. Don't panic. But the ultimate adoption, remember, we receive the Spirit. He's our first fruits. That's number one. And then the last part is the redemption of our body. That's when the adoption is complete, is the redemption of our bodies. So you receive the Holy Spirit, and then eventually you're redeemed through and through. And that's the whole thing. We're just groaning for this final redemption. All right? Now, the Holy Spirit groans too. Look at this. It's not done with the groaning. There's a lot of groaning in here. All right? The Spirit groans. Notice, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. He aids us. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is an interesting text. And the way I have felt, look, reading verses 26 and 27, is like we're given this, I mean, rare picture of the way the Trinity works and what's happening with God and the Spirit as it relates to who we are in this transformation problem. If it's ultimately God's goal, you have to assume that the Trinity is consumed to some degree with our transformation and how that pulls off. And here we're given a little window into what that looks like. So the Spirit aids us in our weakness because even though the Holy Spirit's there, we're still weak waiting to get. It's an ultimate kind of general everyday Weakness. In fact, that same word, weakness, is used a couple of times in chapter 5 and, verse, and chapter 6 to describe us uh, before we're saved. And so it is a general human weakness that is here. All right? But that weakness, notice, that weakness, what, what happens in that weakness? So here we are, we've got the Holy Spirit in us, yet we sense this weakness in us. We do not know how to pray as we should. But it assumes that we what? What is it assuming we do? Pray. Now, this was really good for me. I'm not a prayer warrior. I'd be lying to you if I said I was. It's one of the struggles of my Christian life. Anybody else struggle with prayer? I struggle with prayer, okay? This has helped me tremendously in my thinking about prayer. Because number one, I want you to notice, it's juxtaposition or relationship to suffering and pain. Because remember, that's the theme so far. That says suffering. All right? That's just the thing. All right? All right, so um, there is this connection, and it assumes, and that's the other thing. There's a connection to suffering. So it assumes people who are struggling from the beginning to the end pray. It assumes that they pray, which I thought was really interesting for a minute about the significance of prayer in this whole dynamic of waiting to get to the end and the struggle with our weakness. And so, prayer then, as I saw it here, was simply an act of dependence. I mean, what do you do? You go to God. You pray. So it's an act of dependence. All right? But we don't do it well. Now, we don't do it well in the sense not so much that we don't know what to say, 
or we don't have the right words, or we don't do it for the right amount of time. That's not the, way, that's not the thing. The thing is, is this little phrase, this little Greek phrase right here, as is fitting. We just don't understand the beginning from the end, so we don't know how to ask for the exact thing God may be doing. Isn't that right? Hasn't that ever frustrated you before? Hasn't it ever driven you crazy? I have no idea what to pray for in this situation. Right? If you've been in that situation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's what it says. As is necessary is, is the translation of that. So we don't know what to pray for. And we're not sure sometimes we're praying for maybe not the best thing. Diogenes, who was a philosopher in Greece in the ancient days, he said, we ought not pray because we will say the wrong thing and God will answer it. <laughs> I said, Wow. Okay, so God's forced by what I say? Of course not. So it didn't make a lot of sense. That's a Greek philosopher. It didn't make a lot of sense. All right? But the fact is, is you do pray for things. And most of the time when we pray, tell me this isn't you. Isn't healing, safety, direction. I mean, it's the same thing over and over again, right? Healing, safety, direction, comfort. Lord, make this easy. Lord, can you make this pillow-like? That'd be really great. If you could make this pillow-like. My favorite pillow. You know which pillow I'm talking about. That's essentially how our prayers go. All right, we're not always thinking about what could be best or should be best or what God has in store and what might be best. Of course not. We don't always know what that is. But the idea that this text is assumed that we're praying and that even though we don't know how to pray, it doesn't tell us not to. Right? Isn't that interesting? How many times have I not known how to pray so I didn't? I just muttered something. This text is not saying, hey, you don't know how to pray, so, so don't. You better not open your mouth. You don't know what in the world you're talking about. That's half of what my prayers feel like. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying pray, and you're going to see why here in just a minute, because the, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. You've got to assume that's happening simultaneously with the prayer. And the other thing that hit me was, wow, if I don't pray, guess what? Maybe the Spirit has nothing to say. See what I'm saying? All of a sudden that went, ooh-ooh, ooh-ooh. I need the Spirit pleading on my behalf, but the Spirit pleads as I plead. It's almost trying to make what God wants ultimately and what I want ultimately align. But if I don't pray, he may not have anything to say. In other words, we say, what's the believer look like? What does a secure believer look like going through a world of difficulty before he ultimately is redeemed? What does that look like? I'm sorry, I forgot you guys were over here. I'm facing this way all the time. That's a sin, a preacher's sin right there. So, <laughs> prayer is what sufferers do who want to be aligned with God even though they don't know what that is. Like if I could look in your heart sometimes when you pray, wouldn't it actually be saying this, Lord, I'm praying because I really want this to happen. But in my heart, what I really want more than anything else is what you want. 
See, that's all of a sudden what prayer becomes more than anything else. And all the Spirit does is interpret that part of your heart, which is there because the Spirit is there. So because the Spirit is there, the text is assuming you want what God wants. Even when you pray for something, and it may not be what God wants for you, in your heart, that's really what you do want, and the Spirit's trying to make that clean and clear. With groanings, listen, groanings too deep for words. And I don't even understand what the groanings are that he's saying. But whatever they are, they're unutterable. Too deep for words is one Greek word that means unutterable. In other words, they're without a voice. So this can't mean tongues, as sometimes you'll hear people say, you nothing to do with tongues. First of all, you're not the one groaning. Secondly, the Spirit is, but it's not a groan that you can put into words. This means not too deep for words. In a sense, it's too deep for words because it's unutterable. You can't say it. It's not, it has no sound. That's really what the word means. So there's nothing coming out. There's no sound. It's like this strange inner Trinitarian language that we can't grasp, and we're seeing God and the Spirit conversing and over us. Isn't that really interesting? How many times have you got a window into what that looks like? He's interceding on our behalf with a language that's inner Trinitarian, just like there's just this connection. The only way I can illustrate it is my wife and her twin. They have this weird kind of connection and communication that normal people don't have. And I emphasize normal. <laughs> All right, you can be with them and you can see it happening. Or they'll come together after something has occurred. And I was thinking the same thing. And it's, that's, I think, what the Trinity looks like. <laughs> there's just this DNA. There's just this connection. And I don't know what it looks like. We're going to see a minute what's actually being done there. But that's actually happening as you pray. And see, here was the motivation for me. Just pray. I'll tell you something that I read a long time ago that really did make a difference um, to me a little bit, it's, but it's almost made me stutter when I pray, was I was reading this uh, great little book, uh, and in it uh, there was a story of this brilliant ethicist by the name of John Cavanaugh who went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta. So he was seeking some clear answers to his, how he ought to spend the rest of his life. Okay? We've all prayed for that. On the first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. And she asked, and what can I do for you? And Kavanaugh asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, she asked. And he voiced the request that he, had borne that he came thousands of miles to kind of understand. Pray that I have clarity. How many of you would like clarity? Yeah. Listen to this. She said firmly, no, I will not do that. And you see this little lady saying that? And you're going, but you'd be dumbfounded right there. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and you must let go of. That's what she said to him. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity that he longed for, she laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. 
So I will pray that you trust God. That was powerful. It's so easy to pray the wrong thing. And so the Holy Spirit, in some unutterable language, just this connection between him and God, is somehow interpreting who you are and what you want to really be and trying to align them with God. And notice what God is doing, because this is really amazing. And he, look, look what God is doing. He who searches the hearts, and there are, that's our hearts, and he knows the mind of the Spirit. Now look at that. He knows our hearts and he knows the mind of the Spirit. So you have God kind of looking in on this whole interplay between us and the Spirit. It's so amazing. The Spirit is interceding. God is looking down and seeing this whole thing. So there's this perfect accord between them. And there's this alignment he's trying to reach. God is looking in our hearts, hopefully finds, because the Spirit's there, that we want to be changed. He knows who we are, and he knows what we need. Because remember, even in prayer, when we pray for things, we're going to see in this text that things are designed ultimately to change you. And so when God looks in your heart and your need and he sees what the Spirit longs for you, that's what he answers. You see? It's this transformation. He knows what the Spirit wants for you and he knows where your heart is and what you need and he allows this whole dynamic to occur where the Spirit can change you. That's how prayers become useful. Not that you actually get everything you pray for because that would go completely against this. It would go against what God knows that we don't know, and it would be, go against what the Spirit might want for us. So we're just looking at this whole interplay. It's just amazing, the Spirit trying to match this up. So God's will is being carried out in my life even when I don't understand how, even when I am actually might be praying for the very opposite thing. Do you see that? That's how committed God is. That's how intricately involved he is in your transformation. You say, I wonder if he hears what I say. And I wonder if he cares about what I say. If you're a believer, he cares, but he's looking at it in a very different way than you are looking at it. And it is your character, ultimately, that matters far more to him than anything. It's a beautiful scene and picture, rare glimpse, I think into the Spirit. And notice what the Spirit is praying for. He intercedes for the saints according to, and this is a great little phrase right here. It's just a little prepositional phrase and the word God. According to God is what it actually says. That's why this is in italics. Because it means the same thing. According to God. What the, what he, what the Spirit is praying for is that what God wants happens. And so the Spirit is our help. Even when we don't know how to say it, the Spirit's our help in making sure that everything is staying on track to God's ultimate plan to change you, no matter what that is. That, that includes everything in your life. And so when you pray it all wrong, the Spirit's helping wrap all that up into what really matters the most. And that just gives me comfort in my prayer. It makes me, sec it makes me stop second-guessing what I'm asking for. 
Because part of what you're asking for as a heart of a believer is for God to change you and you ultimately know what the plan is. Okay? And the reason you can pray that way, look, is because you know. And here's the verse you all know really well. See, here's the reason we pray even in difficult circumstances. Here's the reason we leave it to the Spirit to do the work. It's because we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me show you something here. The main line is here. Uh, the words, the word God isn't in the text. It's assumed, okay? All things work for good. So that's what you have as the main line. Now, the way that it's written originally is the verse starts out, to those who love God. Okay? And it ends with those called according to his purpose. Okay, so this is the middle piece. It's bracketed by to who this is for on both ends. And this is really interesting why that is done. I want to show you some things. So here God is at work. Here's the reason you can pray. Here's the reason you can trust the Spirit and all of that. Here's the reason all of this is, is even possible is because God is at work. Okay? He is at work. Now I want you to see. This represents your present life now. The all things. And it represents everything in your life now. The suffering, everything we've been up to in this point in the text. Every bit of your life. All of it. All your experiences. Good and bad. Okay? This represents what is the good. The good in this text is the glory. It is the conformity to Jesus Christ. So this is ultimately the glory we've been talking about in the transformation where you become more solid, more real. All right? So here's the present and here's the future. Paul is basically giving you a different way to look at salvation the way he's been showing you the whole time. There is a present part and there is a future part. And the reason you can't disconnect them, here's the reason you can't disconnect God's plan for your life to transform you. It's because he's at work in between them. If he stopped working in between them, you would be lost. Does that make sense? This is a really beautiful text when you look at it this way. All the things are the things of our lives today. So you get saved, and then all these things happen to you, and you wonder if you're saved, you know, am I going to make it to the end? Yes, you're going to make it to the end. Why? Because God is at work with all of these things. So he hasn't just abandoned you and let you go. Now I want you to know, this is not spiritual optimism. This is not what you say to every negative thing that happens in your life. Oh, I hope God works it to good, you know, it's that kind of thing. This is an ultimate picture of the way God is using, God uses reality to bring about his purpose here. The ultimate good. So you may not experience good here. The loss of your job may not lead to a better one. And the the fact that you gain a little health may not mean you'll be healthier than you've ever been. 
Because ultimately, remember, we don't get out of here alive. Does everybody remember that? We don't get out of here alive. This is the good. This is the ultimate good. And nothing in your life, God doesn't work to make this happen. Isn't that a beautiful thought? There's not anything in your life that God can't use to make something good happen. And by the way, if he can't do that, he's not worth anything. If he's not bigger than reality, if he can't use the negative as well as the positive. And so what makes the transformation happen from here to here is that he's at work in all of it. Okay? So they're joined together at the front end and the back end. And the reason you're secure is because he's using all of reality to accomplish the plan. You remember this? I want to say something to you here because you need to understand this before I get to verse 29 because it's going to be a question in your mind. How does God do that? Because we don't know how he does it. But you're going to ask a sovereignty question here. And then you're going to be on your knees throwing up in Romans 9 on the sovereignty question. But it sort of gets hinted at here. And I want you to just remember Joseph. And Psalm 105 is just re- recapitulating, if you were, just recapping Joseph's life. And I want you to remember in Genesis 50, 20, remember, you meant it for evil, but God, what? Meant it for good. So you had two meanings. You had meaning number one, and you had meaning number two. Ultimately, they worked together to bring about whose meaning? Okay? That's the triangle. That's the picture for God. That's the trinity. So you can have two meanings, but ultimately his meaning happens, you see? That's sovereignty, all right? Notice what 17 says about Joseph, verse 17, Psalm 105. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold. They sold him, God sent him. Now, how can both of those be true? How can you sell and I send from God's standpoint, I just sending him there. From your standpoint, you were selling them and you had a whole different meaning in mind. So I want you to notice that the sovereignty of God works the details of man, which we don't understand or see, but his ultimate meaning always ends up being the primary one in the end. So just keep that in mind. The reality of the matter is the Bible presents God's sovereignty as not wiping out your your efforts and your thoughts, but yet he still is able to get his meaning through even when your intentions aren't good. That's a sovereign God. All things are being worked by God to bring about our ultimate transformation. That's the, point. That's the point of Romans 8. Everything God is doing in the life of a believer 
is to bring about ultimate good. And the reason why you could never separate this one and the reason why you could never lose it is because of all his hard work. And who's he doing this for? Who is this for? Because it's not a universal promise. It's a promise to those who love God. And this is Paul's way of simply saying this is the human side of our relationship. This is how we feel about God. This is the dynamic of our relationship. God can't be said any better. We love him. I mean, at the end of the day, we love him, man. There's just no other motivation for being what he wants us to be. There's no other motivation than the fact that we just flat love him. And we love him because he first loved us. That's it. This is not all dependent on our love. Because this is the reason why we start to feel unassured a little bit. It's because we're not sure about our love. Our love can be fickle. Our love, some days we love more than other days, right? And we get nervous about that. Do I love God enough? Do I love him enough? Do I love him enough? So the whole thing doesn't hang on this. It's a part of it. And we love him because the Spirit's in us and producing that love. There's no way to love, there's no way not to love him back once you understand what he has done for you and you receive it. So, but it does fluctuate to some degree. But it's a general characterization of those who have come to be saved. They love God. But the bottom part is where the emphasis lies. Is this definitely going to happen? Is it all based on my love? Because I'm fickle. It's not all based on your love. You're called according to a purpose. And this is God's part. So this is the human side of this equation. And this is the divine side of the equation. And this is important. Because your love is real for God, but it's not primary. It's real for God, but it's not primary in getting you from start to finish. What's primary is his purpose for you. It's what he's purposed for you that makes this unbreakable. So, the divine side is he has called you to a purpose. And that call is a salvific call. That's a salvation call. It's irresistible. When he calls you, that's when you believe. And you wouldn't believe if he didn't call. It's an irresistible call. All right? To accomplish his purpose of changing you. So the key to security is not your love, it's God's purpose. All right? Both are important, both are a part of this, but Paul will spend verse 29 and 30 focusing on this one because it's the solid one, it's the real one, it's what gives ultimate security. So salvation doesn't begin with you in that sense, it doesn't end with you in the same sense. Remember, it's God's love that transforms. This is a beautiful, beautiful thought, in my opinion, of what he's saying here. But the weighty side goes there, and it's, um, and you see both the human and divine side working. So let's go to, let's see, where are we here? All right, so who does this all work for, and what is God's purpose? We're called according to a purpose. Now, what we're about to see right here in verses 28 to 29, doesn't look like I'm going to have the time to, to get to. Uh, so that, that, that puts us in a lot of trouble. Um, but this is too good for me to try to do in five minutes. It's just too good. So, um, so we're going to have to wait. You know what I'm saying? We're going to have to wait. And that's a shame because we're going to have to get to the hymn in verse 31 to 39 at the end too. But this is too important, I think to Paul's whole argument that we need to spend time on it. So I'm going to stop right there and it'll allow me to focus on a few things that I need to, but it may make me have to sum up the hymn 
a little bit more than uh, that I intended in verse 31 and 39. But as you leave here today, and um, I think what I would be focusing on is, okay, so everything in my life, the reason I'm secure is because there is not one thing in my life that God is not working on to get me to the other side. So the reason the hymn in verses 31 to 39 will say, who can be against you? Who can harm you? That means the all things of the universe can't harm you. Here's the reason why. Because God's using all of those things to ultimately make you good. That's why none of them could keep you out of heaven. He's using them to get you there and to transform you. That's the reason nothing can harm you in verses 31 to 39. It's just an amazing text. But the heart of it is transformation. And I would focus personally on the way I pray. I would think to myself, wow, the Spirit of God is interceding and what I want to communicate to that Spirit as He is communicating and groaning to God is how much I long for what He wants. If somehow I can communicate that in my spirit. Still ask for the things that my flesh in life here seem to require me to ask for. And at the same time, communicate to the Spirit what my heart longs for the most is to become more real. Solid. All the time. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your purpose. Not just your love for us, but as we'll see next week, your purpose for us. And that purpose cannot be thwarted. And in that we just hang our hopes on. Pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.